Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I'm Jeff. And I am so excited about today's guest. But before we get to him, we really want to talk about expert advice for C. You know, we're very lucky to talk to uh, experts everywhere in the company. And now you can as well. But how do you do this, Jeff? Well, it's actually pretty easy, Frank. There's this website called Expert Advice for Z, as you know. You go to ibm.biz slash z underscore consult. Uh, it's a very simple web page. You just put in, like, here's the thing I'm working on. Um, this is the best way to reach me. This, this is the best time to reach me. And IBM will find an expert in that area and have them contact you and uh, hopefully get you unstuck. It's uh, pretty cool, pretty easy. It is in no way a replacement for opening up a defect or talking to your IBM rep, but it's just, you know, something to get you uh, helped out in the meantime. So ibm.biz slash z underscore consult for IBM expert advice for Z. And remember, these are our kind of people, the kind of people you'd hear on this show. Anyway, so I want to move forward here and and really introduce our guest because I am so excited. Now, I know there are a bunch of people out there who are ZOS guys who are probably not going to be as interested in this. I'm looking at you, Rich. But uh, for people who are really interested in TPF, I think you'd really, really enjoy this. Our guest is Mark Gambino. He is the... Really going out on a limb there. I mean, if if you're really interested in TPF, TPF. (laughs) you might be interested in hearing about TPF. (laughs) Well, not just just TPF, but modern TPF. Oh, okay, okay. Right, I mean, that's what's key here is that some of us are still thinking of TPF as a a mainframe assembler uh, operating system. But Mark is going to tell us all about the modern TPF. All right. So uh, you are the chief. So hi, I'm Mark Gambino. I'm the chief architect of the TPF product. So uh, let's start with what's really exciting to me. It's it's not C and assembler anymore, right? No. I mean, people think of TPF and mainframe as, oh, it's all legacy, old assembler, proprietary protocols, and Maybe that was true in the 1970s, but that's no longer the case. I mean, ZTPF now has, you know, C++, Java support, APIs, I mean, you name it. It's any of the modern technology that you can use for interoperability between platforms. It's available on the mainframe as well now. You mentioned interoperability between platforms. Like, what's the typical makeup uh, or distribution of operating systems in a a TPF shop look like? TPF shops, just like any other large enterprise, have all different kinds of systems. You're going to have the mid-range cloud servers. You're going to have front-end systems. But when it comes down to it is when you're ready to do the transactional work and actually make bookings, make purchases, do things like that, that's when the transactions flow into the TPF system. And now you can use REST APIs as well as, you you know, MQ, HTTP, just a variety of of, you know, standard protocols are supported on the platform now. Okay. Yeah, and and when you were talking to me about this the other day, I was really pretty excited because it seems like you've really melded the best of what made TPF cool uh, with all of that modern technology. Can you talk a little bit about um, how I would take, say, a Java program and and be able to to mix that java program 
with some of those old, really cool things uh, that were the key of being transactional? Sure. So if you look at our customers, most of them have literally tens of thousands of application program segments. And as much as they would like to overnight modernize and have everyone converted to you know from assembler or C up into Java, that's not realistic. So you have to have a way to progressively modernize, you know, so something that you don't do all at once, a knife edge cutover that takes five years before you see any value coming into it. So what we did is say, yes, customers, you want Java in your environment, and there's two different use cases that we kind of break it into. One is saying there's so many packages out there there now that are in Java that I'd like to just be able to pull and put on the platform, whether it's open source or even you know code that I have that I wrote myself that's running on another platform that needs TPF data. So from a fit for purpose point of view, it should be on the mainframe, but it couldn't because mm-hmm. you didn't have the language support at the time. So in that case, saying fine, stand up some JVMs you know, for a rules engine, you know, something like that, or you know, Kafka client is another good case that we're seeing to push data out. Those work nicely, but it's also what about my existing applications? You know, I keep wanting to make changes to them. I keep having to. I'm making dozens of changes every week. You know, because even you know, you can say like in an airline industry, oh, it's just a booking application. It's not that simple. There are constant changes that go into them, and saying, well, I'd like to be able to write that new business logic in Java, but it has to then you know work well with the rest of the application that's in C and Assembler. So the way that we implemented it is one transaction can seamlessly flow from assembler to C to Java back to C and so on. So you can put Java where it needs to be and in such a way that if you have, for example, new programmers who are familiar with Java, they're just coding Java. They have no idea they're interacting with older languages. For example, if we have like a C program calling a Java program, the C programmer just issues a C function call. They have no idea they're going to talk to a Java program. And then conversely, under the covers, we make it look as if a REST API call were issued. So when the Java program gets control, he's just doing a REST stack, which is totally natural to the Java programmer. You know, the magic under the covers of how we do this is, you know, we're converting C structures to Java objects and all of that. So it's taking the complexity out of it from the programmer so both sides can be very productive in what they're do naturally. Hmm. And you do that to assembler as well, right? I, I can take a, a Java call and he thinks he's doing a REST call and underneath the covers it turns into an assembler macro call? Sure. The In the reverse case, if I have you know logic in Java and I want to leverage an existing programmer services that are in C or assembler, the Java programmer just issues a REST call, not knowing that it's going to turn into an internal call to the existing program. We hide all of that, but make it possible to go in both directions, absolutely. Now, do you support uh, REST coming in, or is that just, hey, you write your Java program and and you have JAXRS and and kind of deal with it that way. No, I mean, we definitely support you know, REST coming in because that was something that was even before we had Java support in TPF. You know, customers are looking at it. You know, first they started with like SOAP-based web services and then with mobile and everything kicking off, I need the lighter weight services. So REST became very popular. So we've supported REST services for some time. 
And the nice thing about it is I can have a service, for example, in Java on TPF that can be called via REST remotely or locally by programs, which gives you that platform flexibility of if I want to move code from inside the box to outside or the other direction, you can do that seamlessly because it's all a REST interface. You don't have to make you know program changes to do that. With these changes, does this open up TPF to like a new uh, type of uh, audience that maybe um, TPF wouldn't be accessible to, you know, decades ago? Definitely, because one of the knocks used to be is if I wanted to talk to TPF, I had to know TPF. I had to you know have people on both sides code you know some custom interface to do that. You know, APIs, I mean, that's one of the beauties of them, is you don't have to know who you're talking to. So the business can now say, I have these services published as APIs that you can now call from, you know, mobile and cloud, and they don't even know they're talking to a TPF system. You know, it's, for example, you know, major credit card companies use TPF. Right. So all those new forms of payments you use on your smartphone, you tap and all that stuff, well, guess what? That's still flowing into a TPF system in the end. So it opens up all these new worlds, and you know, you'll see the people talking about mobile pay, and that's you know, the cool, sexy way of doing it. But what's behind all of that? What allows that you know, exponential growth in transactions to actually work? It's the mainframe that's actually doing that behind the covers. Okay, so um, I have this Java program, and it's on a, uh, another platform, and it issues REST calls into... My TPF environment. Can I just pick it up and put it down in in TPF and don't change anything and it automatically works? From what we've seen so far, yes. We've taken several standard Java programs or packages that are out there and taken them unchanged and run them on TPF. I mean, this is one of the only times that I've seen the marketing hype actually live up to reality <laughs> of in Java, write it once, and it can run anywhere. Now, obviously, there are some Java programs that have you know specific code for Windows or something within it, but if you don't have any of that custom code for a platform, it just works. That's you know what's really shocked me. I would have thought there had been you know some tuning, some assembly required for it, but not so much. You know, it's a very nice thing. And we kind of laugh because people, you know, that we hear talking about, oh, containers are the big thing. I can actually write, you know, and run multiple applications on one operating system instance or one virtual machine. I'm like, well, that's interesting. You know, we've been doing that for 40-plus years. Right. So Java is <laughs> just yet another version of it. Throw another application in there and... The one nice thing that we did is we didn't just say, oh, yeah, you can do that and have Java just be standalone JVMs off on the side. We integrated that with what's already in the platform. So within one, like, quote, container, you can load Assembler C, Java, all the configuration files that they all need as one package together and deploy them and undeploy them. So it's, it's really almost like a super container type of architecture. And you've also done a lot to make your databases easier to access and deal with, right? Yes. I mean, that was also one of the the knocks is, how do I get at the data? How do I unlock that system of record data that's on the platform? 
and again, what customers had done for decades was they'd write their own custom connectors to get it a certain piece of data, and then, oh, another, I need to get it this piece of data, this additional field within a record now. I have to update the code on both sides, so it's very tedious, you know, time-consuming, error-prone to do, that the requirement that we were looking at was how, from a remote platform, can I get it TPF data including read and update, not just read only, in a standard way. Again, back to that, I don't want the remote programmer to even know they're talking to a TPF system. I want this just to be as natural as possible to them. So we looked at a bunch of possibilities, and the one that seemed to fit the best was a MongoDB interface. So what we implemented is from you know, remote client on any platform that Mongo supports, you can write a standard MongoDB client application that can read and write TPF data, and they don't have to even know how to spell TPF to be able to do that. Hmm. Then we took that a step further and said, oh, from the TPF side, the good news there is you have to write zero lines of code to make that happen. It's purely just a database administrator saying which users are allowed access to what databases. Is it read-only access? Is it update access to them? And again, within TPF is one of the things that we've done for quite a while now with like you know, standard protocols is from a wire protocol point of view, obviously it's standard. You can't change that. But how it works under the covers is what we you know, change to take advantage of the platform strength, both from a software and a hardware point of view. So in this case, you're not running a MongoDB server on TPF. So when people like try to do comparisons of Mongo to other servers and all, you just throw that away. It's a the TPF database is what's behind it. So we're translating Mongo wire protocols into TPF database API calls on behalf of the user to gather the data they need and present it back to them in Mongo format. So it's again, it's the best of both worlds. Open source standard from a remote point of view and TPF database strengths from scale, security, availability, and so on from the mainframe side of it. So if I, if I wanted to, I could use this database uh, for just regular old Mongo work, right? Sure. I mean, you can do that. I mean, there are some limitations on it. It doesn't allow you to create new databases on TPF. You still have to do that from the TPF side. But once you have a database scheme defined in Mongo, you can go ahead and just use it, you know, as any other Mongo database. Except that it has transactional integrity, right? I don't have to worry about eventual consistency, right? Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things people always ask, oh, why do people use you know, TPF systems? Is It's for workloads that are IO-intensive, write-intensive, not just serving up like static web pages, because sometimes, you know, look at transaction comparison rates, it's always, well, what type of transactions? Mm-hmm. It's typically the ones in TPF is it requires multiple database updates done in a consistent manner. So while TPF does support called loosely coupled, which to ZOS you think of a sysplex, you know, multiple copies of TPF running on different physical mainframes, you know, sharing the same database, is we have an always consistent database architecture. You will never read stale data on one of the images which becomes important, particularly from the financial customers that are dealing with you know, trillions of dollars worth of uh, 
you know, transactions flowing back and forth, you know, losing one here and there wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. <laughs> I always think about how, you know, maybe you can walk us through like a, like a, a typical model for um, a, a transaction. But I think about like, you know, booking a flight, uh, uh, you know, it involves more than just like saying, I want this unit for this price. Like the, the prices are dynamically set. It seems like there's different classes of seats you can get. There's different types of upgrades you can get. Um, different times of day, different days of the week. And it seems like such a, like, when you actually hit submit, I can, you know, pretty much hear a thousand different systems and databases all leaping into action in the back end. Like, how does TPF, you know, what what is what is a typical flow of, like, uh, opening and committing and all that that's happening in a TPF system? So, I mean, I'm sure everyone is familiar with making flight reservations. The first part is always the availability request. Right. You know, I want to go from New New York to L.A., on leave this day, come back this day. Okay, show me what's even possible at that point. And you may have some filters now saying, well, I have to be there in the afternoon, so I need an early morning flight, or all day it doesn't matter to me. So it's like sometimes you're already you know, reducing the set of what they can look at. Then it's also you know, what people don't necessarily realize is there's so much different customer logic based on what the channel is. You know, is this someone who's just a leisure traveler, you know, on their, you know, PC looking at things, or is it, you know, a business traveler who has special arrangements? You know, we always joke that, you know, like airlines, you know, the pricing thing there is almost like a random number generator. <laughs> but there's actually, you know, many complex rules that go into it that change. It used to be like, oh, like if you had a Saturday night stayover, you'd get a cheaper rate. And it's, now it's much more dynamic of how they adjust based on availability. Their yield management has gotten much better, which is another um, aspect where it used to be the airlines would you know, take all of the new and change reservations and once a night push them out to the business processes to then update things and prices and come back. Huh. Now that's done in real time. Isn't that thanks to our friends at uh, ATP Co? <laughs> <laughs> well, the part of it is that the, and not just changing the flights, it's changing the, you know, the, um, the pricing on everything, where in real time now, we, TPF has the ability that when a database is updated without making any application changes, we can format that data you know, as a JSON document, XML, whatever is easiest to consume on the remote side, and push that out in real time. So in this case now, you see more of the airlines, their yield management system is getting real-time updates of saying, oh, there's only four seats left on this flight. Let me jack the price up on the remaining ones now. Right. And we, Frank and I have watched that happen. We've been trying to coordinate <laughs> flights. It's like, oh, there's three seats left. Yoink. It's like, oh, no, now I'm over. And now you're no longer in policy. Right. And, yes. But, and it used to be that before all that, you had an hour or two, whatever the window was before things. Now it's, it is literally real time. You said you've seen it. You watch these things happen. So from a customer point of view, they love it. Sometimes from the consumer point of view, <laughs> it's not as good. But it's just showing that the technology, what is possible from that. So sorry, that was a tangent. Back to uh, your cool. question. <laughs> so the availability request is going to show you, you know, what you can do based on all the different rules that are available. Because sometimes it'll show flights to certain channels that it won't show to other channels. 
It gets more complicated if you're trying to do ones that involve multiple airlines who are hosted on different systems, because now the different systems have to interact and, and find out, okay, what, you know, I want this leg of the flight to be airline one, but the second fl- leg of the you know, flight to be airline two, and mix and matching all of those packages and coming back. And then, of course, when you finally say, okay, I've selected the one I want, go ahead and book it, well, things could change because at availability time, it's not locking and all. I can't. So here's 100 different ways you can get from New York to L.A., and I'm going to hold a seat on every one of those for you until you make your decision. <laughs> like, no, it doesn't actually do that. So, And I've checked the thing that says no propeller uh, plane. <laughs> so. Yes. No, no crop dusters, please, if you're going through uh, yeah, bad weather. But, I mean, it is you know complicated where it has to then you know do the availability again to make sure what you're asking for is still available and make sure it can book every part of that because if it is one that's doing multiple legs like you're doing New York through Chicago to LA and back that's four different flight segments and it could be different carriers and it could be you book the first two okay and then find out oh the third isn't available and being able to back all of that out so and then you get into I need you know, not only just invent- I have inventory databases, if you're going to select seats, additional services now that you can book ahead of time. You know, the airlines are just looking for what I can do to um, you know, make more money and make the travel experience better. So I want to offer more services, too, which means I have to tack more of that onto the reservations. And then you have... Um, you know, the global distribution systems, the big GDSs, who want to give you a complete travel experience. It's not just the flight. I want to give you your hotel package, car rental. Do you want to do any entertainment? How do I book all of that together as your whole travel document as you go? So it's just interconnecting more and more of the service providers together that we as the consumers in the end should have a better experience instead of having to book things piecemeal, being able to say, I want my entire trip all linked together so if something changes it's easier to say oh i need to stay an extra day what five things i have to update my car rental my hotel you know to be able just magically to say oh this is your departure date i'll go ahead and take care of all that for you so it's getting smarter and smarter as it goes i'm uh I'm glad there's a system built with all that in mind because, uh, you know, starting to architect that out myself, I kind of gave up <laughs> halfway through. You know, I'm just going to trust the system. <laughs> You're talking about all this stuff, and it sounds like um, this has been the way it is because these these guys have kind of been doing the same kind of thing for a long time. Does that mean that nobody's buying new TPF systems? It's all just existing systems? You know, the number of TPF customers or footprints, should we say, is not, you know, growing dramatically, but more and more people are using it. I talked about, like, the mobile pay concept of it, where there's, so you can say, is, you know, Samsung Pay, is Apple Pay, or all those, are those TPF customers? You know, if you're using it, that's what you end up driving on the back end. The same thing back when just, you know, the Internet started picking up and you had the Travelocities, Expedia's, all the other search engines of the world that you can book through. Well, again, when you say book, where is it getting all that information from? Where is it going to? That's all on the mainframe as well. And we've seen more of the airlines that are 
used to have their own systems and are now moving to a hosted environment on TPF. You know, there's many of the large, you know, companies, you know, GDSs out there that support you know, 200 airlines on their TPF system. So you can throw in another one too. It's just the economies of scale they get there. And even when you look at, you know, some of the, you know, recent transactions, you know, like two hotel chain, very large, just merged together mm-hmm. and had two different IT environments. And the decision they've made is they're going to combine everything on the TPF system. So now it's another very large hotel will be on TPF. And, oh, by the way, in the same exact footprint of the other one. You don't need to say, oh, I need a 1,000 more servers in the in the data center to put into that. It's just one mainframe. Obviously, you need to put a little more CPU in that, but it's just going to seamlessly go in and consume it. You know, we've seen ones, you know, in even the uh, credit card industry of ones that used to be on a distributed system outside the United States that had some issues and a major outage. So forget the reliability, they've already replaced that with a TPF system. So while it's always difficult to say, what do you consider a customer? There's more <laughs> and more uses of the mainframe that are going on, whether you use it. It's always fun when you go to like university you know, to do some recruiting and you ask people, how many of you have heard of TPF? And three or four people raise their hands. Okay, before you Googled it last night, how many people heard of <laughs> And it's like, none. None of them ever heard of it and said, but I bet you every single one of you use it every day and you don't even realize that. And you say, how many people use a, this type of credit card or this type of credit card? How many you know, book you know, flights? How many use these hotels? And you get every hand in the room up. Well, guess what? You're using TPF and you, you don't even realize it. So one of the things that have always made TPF like the coolest thing is the fact that it is high performant, right? Does that degrade when I'm using something like Java? With TPF, what we've done with a lot of the standard protocols is wire protocol is the same, obviously, or API interface from an application. And then we redo the plumbing underneath to make it scale, you know, it's always the mindset tell people is if you're designing you know an API that a program can use it's not that can I do it 10 times a second is can I do it 10,000 times a second at least you have to have that mindset that even if you're starting off with oh, I'm just going to put this out there for this business purpose once people know it's available and it works reusing assets it's going to be used for other reasons so you better build that in up front rather than trying to like hack something in quickly and then have to re-architect after the fact. So even with something like Java, I mean, it is the standard IBM Java that, you know, runs like on, you know, Linux on Z as well. You know, we didn't write our own JVM. <laughs> that would be a little uh, <laughs> amount of work to do. Right. But, you know, it's still utilizing the system services under the covers because when the JVM is like, okay, and all the hooks to the operating system say, do this for me, do that for me. So if it's going to be doing database operations, which any transaction does, you're going to be driving the TPF database engine, the one that's doing you know, millions of IOs per second on some of these systems. So you do get some advantages over it that way. And obviously, we have CPU pricing available on TPF for you know, the newer workloads to allow customers to modernize at a much more you know, reasonable price point that includes like you know, XML, JSON 
Python, you know, Java, any of the newer protocols that are more heavier weight. You know, the same concept that ZOS had done with the zip engines way mm-hmm. back when. So, so generally what we do if you're running Java, we throw a few more low-priced CPUs at those processes versus the more traditional assembler and C. Conceptually, it's the same thing on TPF. If you say, I'm going to now put in some major workload in Java, I'm going to need extra CPU, as you can buy that CPU at a lower price point for that exact reason. Does all this new stuff come in at a new version of TPF? Like, can you say, like, new in TPF version, I don't even know what number (laughs) it is. Or is it just TPF, it's continuous delivery now? Um, TPF has been continuous delivery for decades. Okay. There, we rarely do new releases, mainly because our customers say, if you do that, that requires me to test absolutely everything. So, like, we did TPF 4.1, like, 1994, it came out, and that's when we put in virtual support, virtual address spaces. Because before that, it was one big, maybe not-so-happy address space where, mm-hmm. you know, you could have people stepping on each other. So then back at that time frame, you know, the big selling point was, okay, now a given transaction can commit suicide but not homicide. If it does something <laughs> bad... It's going to only hurt itself, and the system's going to kick it out. But it can't touch anybody else that goes on. That was a major architectural change, so that was required reversioning. Then 2004, we did the ZTPF, which was the 64-bit version. And as well, we also changed the C environment from... Um, an IBM compiler to the standard GCC compiler. We cha- made a lot of changes. So again, that was the reversioning. And we're still ZTPF. You know, we ship code continuously. You know, when we look at it, the amount of code that's shipped each year could be considered a new version. It's just from the customer point of view, it's just much easier for them if they just required it just oh, this is just an update to ZTPF they can do. But for, you know, since I've been in TPF, it's been continuous delivery. When a piece of code is avail- is done testing, it is shipped out as an APAR. It's made available. Customer could pick it up the next day and apply it to their system. And there's so there's one version of TPF, and there's not like, you know, or ZTPF. There's not like ZTPF for work groups, ZTPF Cloud <laughs> Edition. Nope. Just there's, ZTPF. There's a ZTPF. Now, there's... Very few features left on them. The one that allows you to do single image versus a clustered TPF, that's a separate you know, feature that you would have to, you know, separately priced feature to get. But beyond that, we got, there used to be four or five different other features. When we went to ZTPF, we just you know, combined them all in, make wow. it simple. And we used to supply source code, right? We still supply source code for you know, probably 99% of the operating system. Now, obviously, there are certain parts of it that deal with pricing and encryption now that, you know, we ship as, you know, object code only for That's obvious smart. reasons. <laughs> but the rest of it, so customers can make their own updates, which they've done for decades, because sometimes a customer will say, I want you to make a change for this reason, say, if I change that, that's going to break five other customers. I can't change the existing behavior or something. So they'll go ahead and do it if it's not, you know, sometimes it's in one spot, give them a user exit, nice and easy. Others is they're updating five lines here, five lines there, and so on, where it's just they're going to make the updates themselves to do. But, yeah, we still ship source code for just about everything. 
Yeah, so uh, what's in store for TPF in the future? You know, not to, you don't have to break any secrets or anything, but where is it going? One of the big pushes now is it used to be how do I get at the, yeah, that data there, get more out of it, and now it's the back end of it of like how do I feed this into real-time analytics hmm. to be able to get more both from an operational analytics point of view and a business analytics point of view is you know some of the recent things we've delivered make it much easier to say if a problem happens to help you pinpoint what the cause of that problem actually is. Because it used to be we only had like things at the system level that would tell you, oh, your system's 90% busy, and what's going on? It should only be 60% busy. Well, what's causing that? Is it just a workload spike across the board? Is it one channel is hitting me harder? Is it one message type from one user is being used in a different way? The classic city search you know, for like hotels, instead of just looking one, looking citywide now on everything by default, it consumes a lot more CPU, you know, things like that to help you identify them. And where we're going to now is now that we're going to be able to collect all of that data and get some history of getting into the predictive side of it, of being able to tell you, well, I'm noticing a rise in something, and the last four times that happened, you went into shutdown. So give you a lot more you know, heads up about it so you can take the action before you get there. And then obviously down the road from that would be the, okay, not only that is I know what action to take, so I will automatically take that action for you to get you out of that situation. But the part, you know, that's the easy part. Everyone sees that. I'm like, oh, yeah, if you can help, you know, reduce my downtime, that would be great. If it's I don't need to have, you know, operators with 30 years experience on the floor to be able to solve all these problems, that would be great. The business side is the one that I don't think people are tapping into as much as they could yet. Because a lot of times it's the system itself is absolutely fine. You know, but like the example I always love to quote is one of the airlines made a mistake with their pricing updates and had, you know, tickets to Hawaii for like $59 and wondered why, you know, segments in that you know, region were selling out constantly <laughs> where real-time analytics would have told you i usually sell two seats per minute in this segment now i'm selling 200 and yeah. something has happened to give you some notification that something changed and you better go take a look at this before you lose a lot more, more money. money right or start charging 500 dollars for luggage <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> but if it's hawaii hey, all you need is a bathing suit and a carry-on you're good good point, good point. <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned uh, TPF operators. I, I'm just curious. Like I've seen, you know, uh, um, a ZOS console, seen a ZVM console. Is there like a TPF console? And if so, what does it look like? <laughs> TPF console is kind of boring, like everything else. It's just you know text based. You know, we have you know a TPF operations server product that you know is a GUI based one to make things much nicer Ooh. where you can hook you know console automation into you know you can flag so if it says oh if this is an error message or an action message put this off in a separate window so i know to look at those independent of like all the ones that are scrolling by all the time so but it's text based you don't see any fancy graphics with it you know there's monitoring programs that'll show you how the system is doing in real time as well if so you're used to ZOS, pretty much the same sort of thing. Is my system healthy? What's going on? It Be looks all mainframey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, text-based, but you know, from what you're entering in and your know, tabular displays of things, you know, most of it is like 
you hope the operator is our board that are just sitting there, <laughs> you know, drinking their coffee, feet up, and just waiting for the you know the alarm bell to ring and have nothing to do. Those are the good days. <laughs> the board operator is a happy operator. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, uh, Mark. Really appreciate you coming over. This, uh, I, I really got so excited when I first talked to you about how things have changed. And yes, I'm a little bit older and remember it as that is that a similar thing. And, and hearing about how cool it's become is, is pretty exciting. Thank you. Old man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.